listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Brand is not here. He's in Israel with Lauren, and so it's always an honor. In fact, it's a, it's a heavy responsibility anytime that uh, I teach or preach because we're handling the the Word of God, which is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, the author of Hebrews tells us. And so it is an incredible, it's almost scary thinking, I hope I prepared well, which I believe I have, but I want to get it right. So I want to thank you for being here. I want to remind you, you're not here by accident. You're here by design. Before the foundation of time, you were going to fill that seat right where you are today. And so we want to see what the Lord wants to tell us now, James, the book of James, um, it could be retitled as the how-to book for the Christian faith. James is unleashing on those who have nothing more than lip service, this sort of plastic, shallow uh, version of Christianity. They know the songs, but anything that they read out of the Bible or they sing and hear makes little or no difference to how they live out there. And so really what he's saying is, hey, look, Man, this Christian faith you say you have, um, your lifestyle, your behavior needs to validate what you say you believe. That's why he says, look, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now be very, very careful. You have to read the book of James within context of the other 65 books of the canon of Scripture. And so good works, even though he's really pounding that, they're not required for salvation. They're evidence of our salvation. Don't ever forget that. Not one single thing we can do that earns our salvation. If there was, Christ died for nothing and the cross is nullified. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of ourselves, that any person could boast about anything. We're not involved in a works-based religion. The work was done for us 20 centuries ago outside Jerusalem on that bloody cross. Am I right about it? Yeah, you bet I'm right about it. Folks, what this is about is James is saying, what does Christianity look like? And then he says, I'm glad you asked. And he gives a number of examples. So really, with that in mind, do we look like Jesus? Or better yet, do we look like our master? Any dog owners here? All right, yes, yes. But really, do we look like our master? Does what we sing in here and talk about when things are good, does it match our behavior? Because I think you agree with me, actions speak louder than words, right? They do. So let's kind of get into this. Now, what's happening here is that James, uh, this is the half-brother of Jesus, and as I've heard David saying, it's true, he doesn't doesn't play the I'm the half-brother of Jesus card Half-brother, meaning they had the same mom, uh, different fathers, of course. Um, and he became one of the leaders of the New Testament church. Now, this is interesting because you read through the Gospels. As he grew up, he, he did not, he thought his brother was nuts. He thought Jesus was out of his mind. Huh. And still today, some people think that. You go back to C.S. Lewis's trilemma, either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And, but somewhere along the way, James finally saw, hey, man, Jesus is exactly who he's claiming to be, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the God himself. And so 
He grew in his faith and at this point has become a huge leader in the early Christian church. And so we get to James chapter 2. Now this is my assigned text. James chapter 2 is our working our way through James. You'll notice in the last verse of the first chapter, now understand these chapters didn't come into play until the 12th century, I think. Now, they're helpful for us, but back in the day, man, when they were first written, there weren't chapters and verses. They were written as entire letters, and people read them that way. And so you look at the last verse of chapter 1, and James is setting up what he's about to say in chapter 2. In chapter, in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their adversity and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So already James is drawing attention to the marginalized, right? And so we pick up in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the New International Version. If you're in a different translation, it will read something like this. My brothers and sisters, in other words, he's writing to Christians. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism, partiality, prejudice. And then James goes on to give an example that apparently was a huge deal back then. And so this is just an example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in a filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil and evil thoughts? Remember that word evil. So James' point is not that wealthy people are bad and poor people are good. It's not that we are to show kindness and charity to the poor at the expense of the wealthy. No socioeconomic demographic is better than another. How vocationally successful or financially independent someone is means absolutely nothing to God in regard to how we are in his sight. So what's James' point? I'm glad you asked. Look what he says in verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor. Now we're using the poor as an example, but there's your word, dishonored. You've, in other words, placed value of one person over another. This is a bad, bad error. So James then tries to appeal to their logic and common sense. He says, look, you're trying to get something out of some, a group of people the wealthy, and they're the ones who are abusing you and taking you into court for all kinds of things. And in verse 8, he says, if you really keep the royal law, the Old Testament law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. He's saying, what you're doing, man, is you're, you're violating, you're breaking what Jesus himself said was the second most important law in all of his commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And so, then he reminds them that we can't cherry-pick which sins are major and which ones are minor, <clears throat> that it's all the same. Um, because when we talk about favoritism, now you see if you don't agree, I, I, don't, I don't see it a lot. Oh, I see it some, and we all do. <clears throat> and sometimes, no doubt, we've all been sadly guilty because you can judge a book by its cover, and we tend to do that sometimes. But we don't really, th it's like gossip. We think, well, you know, that's, we shouldn't do that, but it's not a major sin until it's done to us, right? Then all of a sudden, we feel the sting, and it hurts. 
And we know, as James finishes out through verse 13, he compares it to adultery and murder. In other words, he's saying, look, it's all sin. Everything from adultery and murder to the slightest whisper of gossip sent Jesus to that bloody cross. So favoritism, the, the, the Greek imagery, is to, to lift up one's face. It's to elevate someone, to focus solely on the externals. Now, we're all guilty of this, right? If I stood up in front of you, oh man, and said, hey, I'm a Republican, immediately you begin to form some opinions. If I say I'm a Democrat, immediately you begin to form some opinions. One of my greatest compliments I ever received was from somebody on social media that said, I can't tell where, which, which party you're in. It's because I'm not in a party, man. I have a biblical worldview, and I'm going to vote and uh, um, point out anything what best lines up with Scripture. Not a man, not a party. But if I say those things, man, you begin to immediately form an opinion. If I say I've been at one point incarcerated, if I say something like uh, I'm, I have to take medication for mental health, I'm divorced, all of a sudden we begin to make assumptions, right? It's, it's how we're wired. And James says, don't do that. Don't judge a book by its cover. So my first point here is that favoritism is evil. Now, why did I use the word evil instead of sin? Well, number one, because James does, but it's because we tend to soften things like this, man. Favoritism, gossip, a little white lie, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> There's nothing little about it. Every bit of it sent Jesus to the cross. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, he was the, um, um, the Russian philosopher who was imprisoned under Stalin in the Russian gulags. And he said, you know, it's almost a joke now in the Western world, in the 20th century, to use words like good and evil. These are concepts from a sphere which is higher than us. That sphere is the Word of God. In chapter 3, verse 8 of James, you'll get there eventually, he says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, are these sins just going to, do we do these and we just die? No. Now, we see that in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to God and boom, God killed them. But most of the time, if we show favoritism, we're just not going to die on the spot. However, something inside of us begins to die. We're never, we can't lose our salvation. You can't be unborn again. But we can lose fellowship with God. Lose our intimacy with the Lord. And so that's how this can become deadly. Thomas Brooks, 17th century preacher, he said, Deliver me, O Lord, from that evil man, myself. You saw there in verse 4 that we just read, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges guided by evil thoughts? Proverbs 28, 21, Solomon wrote, To show partiality is terrible. But I also don't, I don't want to focus simply on the uh, sin of commission. In other words, we go inside and, and we deliberately show favoritism over someone else. But the sin of omission, what do I mean by that? Well, it's this right here. In James 4, 17, he says, Remember it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. We tend to think that 
doing wrong is sin. James tells us sin is also not doing right. And so even if we walk in somewhere and we think, okay, the Bible says not to show favoritism because I'd sure rather value this person over that person, maybe even just a little bit. But to not show value and love for that person is also sin. It's what James says. There's an interesting passage. If you look in your Bible, um, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, and if you have a red-letter version, it's all red. Why? Because it's the single longest recorded answer Jesus gives to any single question in the Gospels. And it's that question where the disciples said, uh, what will be the sign of your coming, your, your return? And so here he goes. And he gives some specific, well, general specifics, if that makes any sense. And, um, and then he tells a number of stories, parables. The last one he tells at the end of chapter 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And this is the one where he says, I was, uh, I was in prison, I was hungry, I was thirsty. And uh, the, the, the sheep, he said, you you did this to me. And they said, hey, when did we do it to you? He said, when you did it unto the least of these, you did it to me. And then he gets to the goats, the ones who didn't do anything. He says, hey, I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was, uh, I was sick. You didn't come visit me and so forth and so on. And they're going, Lord, Lord, when did we not do that? And he says, I'll tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, you were refusing to help me. The sin of omission. Next, favoritism is hypocritical. Now that's obvious, right? Anytime we profess one thing and go out and live another, it's hypocrisy. Uh, by the way, uh, let me remind you of something. The reason um, James is addressing the fact that actions speak louder than words is because that matters, man. That really, really... What we believe, what we really believe determines what we do regardless of what we say. Does that make sense? Of course, it's just common logic. And why is that important? Brennan Manning, the recovering alcoholic, Episcopal priest, he's passed away since. He said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Bobby Conway wrote a book called The Fifth Gospel. He says there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, but most people never read the first four. We get that, right? Hypocritical. Uh, there's an old saying we used to use in youth ministry, imagery, because I remember I've been in youth ministry Oh, man, full-time for like 25 years, almost killed me. Uh, these guys, Austin and uh, Casey, oh, I just lift them up all the time. Youth ministry is hard work, man. I mean, every year those kids come in, they're in the same age group. You get older every year. Yeah, yeah, am I right about that? Yeah. Well, there was one thing we, in imagery that us youth pastors would kind of ask sometimes, and it was this. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know, the reason the Christians were first called Christians in Acts, I think it's 11, the reason they were first called, it was a derisive term. It wasn't like, hey, these people are acting like their leader, Jesus. Let's lift them. It was, <laughs> they didn't like the Christians. 
But they called them Christians because they were so much like Christ. Is our behavior validating what we believe? I don't know if you remember a guy named John Randalls. Man, that dude, the skullet, bald. He didn't even, there was even no, there was not even any business in party back here. No business, just all party. But he had the skullet. <clears throat> I'll never forget. I think I'd taken a bunch of youth to see him and he was speaking. In fact, uh, his, they attended here when I was here. The eight of those years in my youth ministry were right here in this church. And I remember him saying, you know what, you're going to have a hard time talking to a cop about Jesus when he keeps stopping you speeding down Indiana Avenue. And then he said this, don't tell me you're a Christian by placing a fish on the back of your car. Tell me you're a Christian by the way you drive. Oh, ouch. That's a huge ouch. Are you like me? I head here on Sunday morning. And then I take that, effort, that exit off Quaker, and all of a sudden I slow down. <laughs> Hi there. How are you doing? Maybe church members, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. You know, hey, that's, yeah. Well, oh, man. Michelle and I, a long time ago, uh, when we were in college, actually, we got invited to go to the Dallas-Fort Worth area and... Um, sing at a banquet for what's called, what's called Southern Baptist Convention Leadership. Now, these are folks, oh, um, they get elected to something and go do something. I don't know what they do. But anyway, but they, they have these titles, and they kind of, you know, they kind of pat each other on the back. And they, Not all of them. I promise not all of them, but, but some do. And some were there at this dinner. And they, they give the sound bites and the quotes about how they love the Lord and how we need to reach the world for Jesus. And you know all I remember about that dinner? And I was young, in my early 20s. All I remember, the guy who was actually the head guy of the, the Baptist Convention of Texas, all I remember is how cruelly he treated that server. That's all I remember. Hypocritical. Let me show you this. Luke wrote, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Jesus never did that. You know what Jesus did? He said in Matthew, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lorded over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Do you know what day servers in restaurants hate to work most? Today, Sunday. Fine church people in their church clothes come in. Not all of us. Just judgmental, angry, impatient, low tippers, that sort of thing. Frederick Nietzsche, the 19th century German philosopher, he said, I might believe in the Redeemer if his followers looked more redeemed. Next, favoritism insults people made in God's image. Now, this is the hardest one for me to center on because the Lord has given Michelle and me such a ministry to the hurting. And when I think about people treated poorly just because they're not pretty or don't look the part, and you know that all of a sudden their self-worth has plummeted, it just... Right now, it makes my heart constrict. 
Now we know from Genesis chapter 1, we know this. God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. But it gets even more personal in the prologue here to John's gospel. He says, to all who did receive him, Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You want to see a parent lose their ever-loving mind? Mess with their kids. And so when we show favoritism, man, and it's not even an overt thing. It's not that we're cruel or hateful to someone. It's just that we ignore them. We, We place more value on this person than on them. That's sin. It's evil, says James. As I said, I was a youth pastor for a long time. And at one time, it may startle some teenagers to know that I was 13. (laughs) There's no crueler place on the planet than middle school. Am I right about it? Oh my, holy mackerel. Your body's changing, you're in puberty, and then you got, you have those who are real extroverts and they seem to be doing fine, but the rest of us, it's just a tough time, man. And it doesn't take much just to make us feel less of us than we already feel. Remember being the last person chosen to be on a team? You got the two? <laughs> all right, you be a team, you be a team, you all start picking. And all, everybody starts going, and it gets lower and lower, and there you are. And then when they finally pick you, it's kind of like, okay, come on. Or sitting at the lunch table by yourself, or giving that cutting look, or just ignored. Let's translate that into an adult world. You've been, oh, sorry. <clears throat> Ever been treated differently because of your weight? How you dress? Now I know those theologians, ZZ Top, everybody, every girl's crazy about a sharp dressed man, <laughs> but it shouldn't matter. What kind of house you live in, your age, the way you talk. You know, God forbid favoritism infect the church, but sadly it does sometimes. You know why? Because we're flawed, we're broken, we're, we're doing our best to navigate this sometimes painful thing we call life, and we love the Lord, and, but we still have this, what the Bible calls our flesh, this sort of base camp uh, for our natural desire to disobey God. That's the way we are out there, and so it shouldn't surprise us. Those of us who are out there, we come in here, and sometimes those same nasty habits will flare up. In fact, Philip Yancey is my favorite author. He, he, he was told a story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And so he's sharing this story. The story a guy told him who was standing on a corner, busy intersection in New York City, and uh, there's a lady next to him who is down on her luck, clearly. She's mumbling to herself. She's actually weeping. Well, he looks at her. He says, ma'am, are you okay? She's not. She's a prostitute, used to be doing fine, but lost everything, turned to, um, turned to that. And so after talking to her for a moment, he's really heartbroken for her, and he says, do you, do you have a church? Here's what she said, and I quote, church, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Mark Twain <laughs> used to talk about people who were good in the worst sense of the word. <laughs> Oh, my friends. John wrote, 
to all who did receive Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Never forget your identity in Christ, regardless of how you're treated. And then fourthly, favoritism vandalizes biblical love. Favoritism vandalizes biblical love. The word vandalize, of course, means to destroy or to damage. Jesus said, as I've already mentioned, by this everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, he said, man, don't just sing the song, don't just quote the verse, do it. That was on the night before he was crucified. And then after he had risen again, he looks at him and says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In other words, man, you've learned enough. Take what you've learned and do it. Have you ever been misrepresented? Oh, that's angering, right? If someone misquotes you, says you said something that you didn't say or or describes your personality as something that you're not, it's infuriating. How'd you like to misrepresent God? Misrepresent how he defines love? Brother, sister, that's a bad idea. It happened in the book of Job. Of course, Job, we're never given the, the reason why God put him through hell on earth. Michelle and I have buried a child. Job buried 10. He suffered. And so in chapter 3, his friends show up at a Jewish tradition at the time. They just sat with him for seven days. I call that the ministry of presence. You don't need to say anything. Don't give them any bumper sticker theology. Just be with them. They'll talk when they're ready to talk. Well, his friends started to talk, and it just went downhill from there. Idiots, total idiots. In chapter 42, here's what God says to Job's friends. Because they were telling Job, they were preaching to him little sermonettes about what must be wrong. Job, you must have horrible sin in your life. That's why you're suffering. They completely and absolutely misrepresented God. Here's what Job God told him in Job 42.7. I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me. So what about us when we vandalize biblical love, when we misrepresent biblical love? Jesus is the antithesis of favoritism. Can you imagine if Jesus played favorites on the cross Father, I'm here, but I'm not going to die for the Democrats or the Republicans or those who don't like (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Just seeing if you're listening. The Gospels are littered with stories of how Jesus elevated women and the poor and the outcasts. Yancey, remember that story I just told you about the, the prostitute? He said, what struck me about my friend's story is that women, much like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. Ouch. He said, what's happened? We deify athletes and celebrities. It's no wonder they see themselves as God. That's the way the world treats them. The successful, the pretty, the good-looking. But we remember in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when God told Samuel, 
People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Folks, the ground is level at the cross. So what's the cure to favoritism? The cure. I'm behind, aren't I? There we go. Okay. Why do I say cure? Well, in Jeremiah 17, 9, through the prophet Jeremiah, not the bullfrog, God said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. What does that mean? That means there's nothing we can do through human effort to make ourselves right in the sight of a holy God. We have a natural desire to sin. When people kind of push back on that, I go, did anyone ever have to teach you how to be selfish? How to hate? How to lie? No, it all came naturally, right? So the first cure is just to repent. It's real simple. To identify something in our life that's, that's an abhorrence to God. That, as we said, we've got to see it as evil. We've got to see sin as sin, man. We've got to stop pretending that it's no big deal. In fact, James in chapter 4, verse 4, says sin makes us an enemy of God. And listen, we can't just kind of like, well, you know, I'll get over it and I'll just sort of come up with some willpower. No, that doesn't work. Let me read you what one writer wrote. Evil never surrenders its grasp without a fight. You ever tried to willpower yourself out of something? Good luck. See how that works for you. Every person who wins, they continue, every person who wins their spiritual freedom does so at the cost of blood. Satan is not put to flight by our courteous request. I want you to see this prayer from David. Now, this is after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered. Look what he said. This is no flippant, casual repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love, that covenant love, that Hebrew word hesed. Because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts, for I'm aware of my rebellious acts. It's it's all over me, God. I am forever conscious of my sin against you and you above all, and you alone. I have sinned. Look what he says. And I have done what is evil in your sight. Man, get right with God. The blood of Jesus will wash you clean as white as snow. But don't mess with it and just think, well, I'll eventually get out of that habit. No, we won't. Satan will make sure of it. And by the way, when God delivers you from evil, don't keep in touch. Next, learn how to be humble. Now. Why did I put now? Because people learn at different speeds. It takes me a while to learn. i got to really study. And so that's why I say, yes, learn to be humble, but don't, don't drag your feet. James wrote, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Through Isaiah, Human pride will be humbled. Human arrogance will be brought down. There is no caste system in God's kingdom. The ground, again, is level at the cross. In 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-eight, Samuel said you, to the Lord, You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. And then, learn to love others like Jesus loves you. Oh, what a passage here in Ephesians, Paul writing from prison. He said, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, 
because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love continually. That is, value one another. Practice empathy and compassion, unselfishly seeking the best for others. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Folks, I know this is its just a, some imagery. You have the most valuable diamond on planet Earth in this hand, and you have a copper penny in this hand. In God's economy, the value is the same, regardless of how we look, regardless of how we're gifted. And there at the end of your notes, I do have this quote by Brennan Manning from his book, Ruthless Trust. We can no more catch a hurricane in a shrimp net or Niagara Falls in a coffee cup than we can grasp the love of God in us. Well, two stories I'd like to end with. One, Bob Goff is a fascinating man. He wrote a book called Love Does. And that's really, I guess that's another way you could describe James' letter. He said, look, don't just be hearers only, be doers also. Put it into practice. That's the evidence of the fact that we've even come to faith in Christ. Jesus said, you will know a tree by the fruit it bears. So if it's just a tree and they never produce any fruit, you don't know what it is regardless of what it claims to be. And so we have this fruit of the Spirit, so to speak. And so love does. Here's what he said. I used to think I could learn about Jesus by studying him, but now I know Jesus doesn't want stalkers. I like that imagery. He's an attorney. He said, I get paid as a lawyer to collect information and memorize facts, and I've gotten really good at it. What I realized about my faith is that I was doing just that, collecting information and memorizing things about God. I talked about knowing Jesus like we were best friends when actually we really hardly knew each other at all. Then he says this. He shares he had been going to a Bible study. He says, a Bible study sounds like a wholesome thing to do, and it is. When I left the Bible study, though, I found I couldn't remember a single thing we had talked about. And then I rarely applied what I actually learned as a result. Now this. So I started getting together with the same guys each week, and instead of calling it a Bible study, we call it a Bible doing. Don't you love that? Instead of a, I mean, it is a Bible study, but a Bible doing. Oh, what a paradigm shift. Last story. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find Jesus was always noticing. There was a lot going on, especially with him. I mean, in his early 30s, he had become this celebrity. They tried to crown him king. He refused that. He said, I'll be your servant. I won't ride into Jerusalem uh, on a big Arabian stallion, I'll just come in on a donkey. I, he made himself humble. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. He, but he was always surrounded by people everywhere. So for him to be able to notice the hurting was a pretty significant thing. And he always did. 
It's because he was actively watching. I mentioned Philip Yancey a minute ago. He wrote a book called Soul Survivor. And he wrote about several people who had modeled Jesus to him over the years and had really made an impact on him. One of them was a man named Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Paul Brand. And so Yancey writes about when he first met him. He said, this guy was brilliant, a brilliant physician. He would head up major medical centers in England and the United States, give distinguished lectures. He's appointed as commander of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, this guy, he could have done just... Well, he did do amazing things, but what he did, he spent his entire life ministering and treating lepers. Now, leprosy is not just an ancient disease. It's still today. In fact, when Yancey went to meet him, he said, we met on the grounds of the only leprosarium in the continental, continental United States, which is in southern Louisiana, down among the alligators and mosquitoes and humidity in the backwater town of Carville. It's called the National Hansen's Disease Hospital and Research Center. In biblical times, you know this, leprosy victims kept a wide berth and they had to shout, unclean, just as they walked. This scarlet letter have you ever had someone make you feel less than human? Of less value. That's what James is talking about, man. In medieval times, they had to live outside the walls and wore warning bells. And even today in modern India, they'll literally be kicked and then kicked out of family and lead a beggar's life. Paul Brand, Dr. Brand, told Yancey about a quote he had heard that, that he had been told by Mother Teresa. She said, we have drugs for people with diseases like leprosy, but these drugs do not treat the main problem, the disease of feeling unwanted. And then he met a guy named Sadan, S-A-D-A-N. Sadan was a patient there, and he showed Yancey his stubs of feet and hands and things like this. And he told Yancey wrenching stories about rejection and being treated so poorly, ostracized, marginalized. And then he said, when I met Dr. Brand, he took my hands and examined them. He said, it was the first medical worker in my life who dared to touch me. And he says... I nearly forgot what human touch felt like. We're surrounded by people who have forgotten what it feels like to be valued, respected, given dignity, noticed. So let's change the paradigm. Let's leave this Bible study 
and let's have a Bible doing. The Holy Spirit will quicken our hearts to those around us who may just need a spiritual shot in the arm, a hug, a tap on the back, who have forgotten what it's like to feel valued. Let's just be like Jesus. For those of you who have never met this Christ, this Jesus who loved the unlovable, the marginalized, the, those who were seen as less than in society, oh, I encourage you today to give him a chance to get to know him. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back up and start playing. This man who showed no favoritism, that when he suffered that beating, as Isaiah says, that he was marred beyond human recognition and was uh, taken and tortured and then nailed to that bloody cross and stood up humiliated, naked in front of everybody to die. When he did that, he was thinking of you. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And you have infinite value in his sight. So much so that his son died for you and would do it again and again and again just to be with you. If you don't have a church home and you're looking for a church, man, I would encourage you, plug in somewhere. Whether it's here or somewhere else, man, plug in. And let's do some Bible doing. How about it? If you need to talk to someone, maybe you've been on that receiving end, And you need to be reminded of what is true. That Jesus loves you. Whatever it is, we're going to be here. I'll be here and we'll have people in the back. Uh, these musicians will be here after we're done. We'd love to visit with you and pray with you. But let's just do business with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you. For allowing us to come together and just visit about your word. Father, help us today to be like you. God, if any of us are guilty of showing, playing favorites or showing favoritism, may God search our hearts and convict us, please, and we promise to get right with you right now. And then, God, for those who have been the target of favoritism, God, remind them that has nothing to do with them but everything about the person who's doing it. God, because in your sight, they are holy and righteous and your children and of infinite value and worth. So God, do your work in us now. In Christ's name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 